From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. Kevin McCarthy is Speaker of the House. But what did it cost him? Ron Elving takes us through the week. Also, an encouraging jobs report. And later, an exhibit of art by children in Ukraine. Adrian Kochman, the curator, says even in war, children find images of joy. A number of the students are looking to a future where nature is bright and hopeful and happy. There's no real evidence of brutality and violence today. Also, Deepti Kapoor's acclaimed new novel, Age of Vice, and John Burnett recollects 36 years of eloquent reporting on the world. First, our newscast at Saturday, January 7, 2023. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. Following days of failed votes and negotiations with Republican holdouts, California's Kevin McCarthy has delivered his first speech as House Speaker. And now the hard work begins. What we do here today, next week, next month, next year, will set the tone for everything that follows. McCarthy took the speaker's gavel overnight after convincing enough of the holdouts to vote present, lowering his threshold for victory to 216. He said the first bill under a slim Republican House majority will be aimed at repealing new funding for the IRS. He also said one of the first hearings will be focused on the southern border. McCarthy spoke as President Biden is preparing to visit Mexico for the first time since taking office. Biden is due in Mexico tomorrow evening after visiting the Texas border town of El Paso. Federal health officials say there's good news and bad news about the nation's triple-demic of respiratory viruses. Here's NPR's Rob Stein. The good news is that the unusually early and severe RSV surge appears to have peaked, and the flu is finally receding too. But both viruses are still spreading widely, and now COVID is surging again just as a new, even more transmissible variant is taking over. It's called XBB15, and it's both better at sneaking around immune defenses and apparently easier to catch. So infectious disease experts are urging people to get vaccinated and boosted, avoid crowded, poorly ventilated indoor spaces, wear masks in risky situations, and get treated quickly if they get sick. Rob Stein, NPR News. The latest assessment from Britain's defense ministry says fighting in Ukraine has continued at what it calls a routine level, despite a temporary truce Russia declared for Orthodox Christmas. Both sides are reported to be trading artillery fire at the front line today. Russia's defense ministry claimed today that Russian forces are only responding to Ukrainian fire. The first week of 2023 saw stocks gain ground, but NPR's David Gura reports a lot of economic uncertainty remains. The Dow Jones Industrial Average ended the week up by 1.5% and the tech-heavy Nasdaq by 1%. In December, the U.S. economy added 223,000 jobs, according to new data from the Labor Department. That's slightly more than Wall Street expected, but fewer than the economy added in November, which Wall Street saw as a sign the Federal Reserve's fight against high inflation is working and the Fed's aggressive rate hikes are slowing down the economy. Wages grew only moderately. But amid concern about a potential recession, some big companies announced layoffs, including Salesforce and Amazon. The retailer announced it's cutting more than 18,000 positions. David Gura, NPR News, New York. And you're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Some members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation have made clear they are not pleased with the circumstances surrounding the start of the new Congress. They were sworn into office overnight after it took 15 rounds of voting to elect Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. House Whip Catherine Clark says House Republicans are doubling down on extremism. Congressman Jake Auchincloss is denouncing days of dysfunction that he calls unacceptable. Governor Moore Healey is settling into her new job. Yesterday, she swore in members of her cabinet and signed an executive order creating a cabinet-level climate office. As for her inauguration, Healey says it was a very special once-in-a-lifetime experience. WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown has more. Healy says she'll have to get used to coming through a different gate on her way into work. The State House is directly across the street from her old Attorney General's office. Healy also noted this week's seamless transfer of power from one party to another. And I hope our state can be an example to others in a time where unfortunately across this country we've seen a lot of divisive rhetoric and ugly political discourse and too many politicians looking to divide and, and really um, exploit uh, misinformation, disinformation, even people for their own perceived political gain. Healy says she remains grateful to former Governor Baker and his team for what was an incredibly smooth transition. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. MBTA riders should expect some disruptions on several lines this weekend. Orange and Green Line trains will bypass Haymarket Station to allow for more demolition, demolition of the government center garage. Orange Line riders will exit at North Station or State Street and will need to walk to the Haymarket area. Green Line passengers will exit at North Station or Government Center. The Orange Line also continues to run behind schedule after several new cars were removed from service for an electrical issue. And on the Red Line, shuttle buses are replacing train service for several stops surrounding the JFK UMass Station. It's 36 degrees in Boston, highest today in the mid-40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks for joining us. This past week in the House of Representatives went a little like this. Adams, Jeffries, Adderholt, McCarthy. A speaker has not been elected. 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 The Honorable Kevin McCarthy of the state of California is duly elected Speaker of the House of Representatives. After five days and 15 tries, maybe they were cheering the fact that they get to lie down now. The House chose its next speaker, and Pierre Senior Editor and Correspondent Ron Elvin joins us. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. I mean, Kevin McCarthy shouldn't feel uh, conspicuously bad because it took even more votes to select a speaker back in, uh, was it 1859? Yes, that's right, Scott. It yeah. took well, 14... I only know that because you prompted me with that, but go ahead, yes. <laughs> I was impressed. It took 44 ballots in 1859, and that wasn't even the record. The all-time high was 1855, when the vote lasted two months and took a record 
133 rounds of voting. But, you know, the 1850s were a long time ago. The country was sliding into civil war at the time. No one wants to look back to that time as a model. Uh, now, after the Civil War, speaker votes got pretty routine. In fact, there had only been one other speaker since then who needed more than one ballot. And even that was a long time ago, 1923. So this week has been a grueling reminder of just how much division we have in our politics these days and also a reminder of how Congress is getting tougher to manage. Is there a larger message here about Kevin McCarthy, what he did to become speaker what his leadership kind of has to be like. He closed his speech last night or early this morning by saying, quote, I never give up. And after this week, you have to give him that. But it also seems apparent the man wanted to be speaker so badly, he let his adversaries rewrite the job description for him. And we'll find out soon just how much trouble that will cause for him and for the rest of the government. And I must ask, what does it say about the state of the Republican Party that so many people were willing to put their once and future leader through this kind of public display. Well, as more than one of them said last night, it's not a good look. But there was a cadre of about 20 members who really did not care about that. They had an agenda, or rather several agendas of their own. They wanted more power for rank-and-file members, especially for members from the House Freedom Caucus. They were members of that caucus, and in some cases for themselves individually. And even though they were big Trump supporters, uh, they spurned the former president's efforts to sway them. But in the middle of the night, last night, the very last six of them stopped voting against McCarthy and instead voted present, and that was just enough to let McCarthy squeak by. Did the Democrats put themselves in the position of of taking some advantage uh, from events over the past week? Number one, they showed a united front for their own nominee, Hakeem Jeffries, who will now be the minority leader in the House. Uh, they also took the opportunity to mark the second anniversary of the January 6th riot that breached the Capitol. Uh, they held a ceremony on the steps of the Capitol honoring the police officers who died. At the White House, Biden yesterday honored various officials who had stood up to Trump's pressure to overturn the election of 2020. And uh, Biden was able to spend much of the week on something of a bipartisan high road, visiting a bridge between Ohio and Kentucky with Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell and proposing a series of tougher border control measures, angering many Democrats while also proposing new ways to improve access to legal immigration. And he's heading to the border this weekend to highlight what's been the hardest nut to crack in U.S. politics for decades. And, and he has some opposition within his own party, doesn't he? Yes, because there will always be division among the Democrats as well, especially when you start talking about enforcing various kinds of crackdown on the border with Mexico. But that is, a, that is an issue that has in the past been able to unite the two parties. That's a high ambition, but it's one that Biden has set out for himself in the next two years. NPR's Ron Elving, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. There have been some serious layoffs in the high-tech industry lately. Amazon cutting 18,000 jobs. Salesforce is laying off more than 7,000 people. But the broader job market is still humming, and the unemployment rate last month was just 3.5%. That matches its lowest level since 1969. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us. Scott, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Scott. Employers have been adding hundreds of thousands of jobs month after month. What's been going on? 
Yeah, December was another solid month of job growth with 223,000 jobs added last month. The pace of hiring has slowed since the beginning of last year, but there are still lots of jobs available. What's also encouraging is that more than 400,000 people joined or rejoined the workforce last month. And economist Michael Puglisi of Wells Fargo says that's helping to close what had been a big gap between employers' demand for workers and the number of people available to fill those jobs. It's just one report, right? You know, you don't want to put too much weight on a single reading, but it has the right mix of ingredients for, you know, evidence that labor supply and demand are coming back into balance. And that may spell some relief for the Federal Reserve, which has been worried that an overheating job market could fuel inflation. Yesterday's report doesn't erase those concerns, but it does suggest things are moving in the right direction. And Wall Street's excited? Yeah, the Dow Jones Industrial Average soared 700 points yesterday, or more than 2%. The other major stock indexes rose by a similar amount. Investors are hoping that as the job market gradually cools, it will take some pressure off inflation and allow the Fed to slow or even stop raising interest rates. Average wages in December were up 4.6% from a year ago, which is still probably faster than the Fed would like, but it's a smaller annual increase than the month before. Uh, We are going to get some more comprehensive wage data later this month, uh, and that's just before the central bank is set to make its next decision on interest rates. At the same time, Scott, are are there weak spots in this week's report? You certainly see a slowdown in manufacturing jobs. That's a sector that's particularly sensitive to rising interest rates. Factories are still hiring, but not as fast as they had been. Uh, Of course, you talked about the job cuts we've seen in high tech. Another thing to keep an eye on is temporary help firms. They cut 35,000 jobs last month. Temps are often the first people hired when businesses are growing and the first to be let go when demand tapers off. Jim McCoy is senior vice president at Manpower Group, a big temp help company. In general, there's been a slight softening in demand for temporary workers that's been happening since the summer. Recently, um, hiring was a little bit down, particularly in support of retail sector, which you would normally see more of a pickup of temp hiring around the holidays. That was down a little bit. At the same time, McCoy says he's still seeing robust demand for temp workers in fields like healthcare, And healthcare also added a lot of permanent workers in December with 55,000 new jobs. Scott, what do you think we can look forward to for the job market in the new year? We're probably going to see slower job growth. Uh, Employers added 4.5 million jobs last year, and we're not likely to repeat that, especially because all the jobs that were lost in the early months of the pandemic have now been replaced. So far, though, there has been no sign of widespread job cuts, despite some of those ominous headlines you mentioned and concerns about a possible recession. It seems like after struggling for much of the last two years to find enough workers, employers are going to be slow to hand out pink slips if they can avoid it. And Pierre Scott Horsley, thanks so much. You're welcome. An urbane French friend taunted me recently. UNESCO has declared the French baguette on the list of intangible cultural heritage products, he said, but not the American bagel. This must upset you. N'est-ce pas? N'est-ce yes. I know the bagel is not American-born, but a lot of the best things about America aren't. That's our story, isn't it? The first written record of bagels comes from the Jewish community in Krakow, Poland, in the early 1600s. But bagels are now ubiquitous across America, with bagel shops on streets and in shopping malls, and bagels or at least pale, squishy facsimiles in grocery and convenience stores. 
I've had bagels in Sitka, Alaska, Des Moines, Iowa, Rockford, Illinois, and Salt Lake City, Utah. A salt bagel, in fact. Not a mile from Temple Square, and yay, verily, it was good. Especially when you slather enough cream cheese on it to douse a forest fire. You can find bagels, plain sesame, garlic, cinnamon, raisin, pumpernickel, onion, and everything, which I believe means bits and pieces of whatever the rumba just sucked up from the bakery floors, scattered wantonly across the rounds of boiled dough. And there's a miscellany of newer flavors to make you gasp and exclaim, only in America, Asiago, cheddar jalapeno, rainbow, and, I hardly dare speak its name, blueberry. Fanny Singer, the great food writer, told us this week, the recent efflorescence of excellent hipster-run bagel joints across the country speaks to the eternal zeitgeistiness of the bagel. Efflorescence and zeitgeistiness in the same sentence, only on NPR. I just had a sriracha bagel. I know it's not authentic, but the stomach doesn't care. And there is something authentically American about a Thai chili paste seasoned bagel. It's a tasty attestation that cultures from all over the world come to America, mix, mash, share, and make something new together. Mixing is the recipe for America. That's why I believe the American bagel belongs on the same UNESCO intangible cultural heritage list as French baguettes, Cuban rum, and North African couscous. Very well, then, as Walt Whitman wrote, I contradict myself. As my wife and I tell our daughters in our Chinese, French, Irish, Jewish, and quintessentially American family, you contain multitudes. Yay, verily, you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Ahead on Weekend Edition Saturday, you'll hear about Children of War, an exhibit at Chicago's Ukrainian Institute of Modern Art that features artwork by children in Ukraine. Also, you'll get the last dispatch from national correspondent John Burnett. He is retiring after 36 years at NPR. WBUR supporters include Catchlight Painting, committed to meticulous interior and exterior painting, including new and historic properties. See their portfolio at catchlightpainting.com. It is 36 degrees in Boston, some clouds around this morning, and highs in the mid-40s. Overnight lows dropping to the mid-20s, a sunny Sunday, tomorrow's highs in the upper 30s. Monday, partly sunny, a slight chance of some snow, and highs in the low 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. It took 15 rounds of voting, but California Republican Kevin McCarthy is now House Speaker. After overcoming holdouts among House Republicans, McCarthy took the gavel overnight, and House members are now sworn in. The Los Angeles Dodgers are cutting ties with pitcher Trevor Bauer. The Dodgers made the announcement after Bauer was reinstated following his record suspension for violating Major League Baseball's domestic violence policy. And the Mega Millions jackpot has grown to more than $1 billion, the third largest in U.S. history. The next drawing is Tuesday night after no one hit all six numbers last night. 
I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment, viking.com. And from Noom, a personalized weight loss program designed to give people knowledge to set new goals and the tools to stick to them for good. Learn more at Noom. N-O-O-M dot com. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The NFL season resumes this afternoon for the first time since Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin suffered cardiac arrest during a game Monday night. Though his condition is improved, he remains hospitalized. Reporter Greg Eklund spoke with players on the Kansas City Chiefs about how they feel about taking the field today after such an emotional week. This afternoon's kickoff in Las Vegas between the Chiefs and the Raiders will be the first since the NFL ended Monday night's game after DeMar Hamlin collapsed. Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes says taking the field for this game won't be the same. You put all this work in for months to try to go out there and play your best football. But when you get on that field, I'm sure it'll be a a little bit of a weird feeling because it was such a scary incident that was terrifying. The NFL announced late Thursday the Bills-Bengals game was canceled and would not be rescheduled. That creates lots of questions about who's at the top in the AFC as the regular season ends and playoffs begin. Last Sunday, Mahomes threw three touchdown passes when the Chiefs needed a victory to stay in contention for the number one seed in the AFC playoffs. That win gave the Chiefs extra incentive. To pay attention to last Monday's game between the Bills and the Bengals, the other top seed contenders. Mahomes says he wasn't prepared to see what unfolded. Um, and I'm not going to say we take it for granted, but you go out there and you play a game that you love and you just enjoy it. And you don't think about uh, things like that happening. Whenever something like this happens, uh, I think it impacts everybody. It's been more than 50 years since a similar tragedy shocked the NFL and its fans. In 1971, Detroit wide receiver Chuck Hughes became the only player in the NFL to die after collapsing on the field. Hughes suffered a fatal heart attack during the final minutes of a game against the Chicago Bears. Severe injuries are common in football, and earlier this season, Chiefs wide receiver Juju Smith-Schuster suffered a concussion when he was knocked unconscious during a matchup with Jacksonville. He says he doesn't remember anything about the incident or his concerned teammates surrounding him, but Smith-Schuster says he and players like Hamlin know the risks and have tried since they were kids to fulfill their NFL dreams. That's what it is, and football has always been that for him. And I can say that because it's always been that for me. There's been growing concerns in recent years about the brute force or violence of football and what could happen medically as a result. Backup quarterback Shane Bouchelle says he received warnings early from his father. He played Major League Baseball for 11 years and told Shane football was not the family's choice for sports. His mom never let him play because of the physical nature of football, so that's why he went baseball. 
Bouchel says although he knew the potential dangers of playing football, he chose it anyway. From the quarterback position, I feel like you can take over a game more than you can maybe in a baseball game. The only way you can is as a pitcher, and I pitched, I loved it, but that's nothing like football. All teams will be back in the field this weekend for the finale of the regular season, including the Buffalo Bills, who will take on the New England Patriots. What will continue to be on the minds of many players and fans alike is the status of hospitalized DeMar Hamlin. For NPR News, I'm Greg Eklund in Kansas City. Forecasters predict the Russian River will begin overflowing its banks early next week with more heavy storms on the horizon for Northern California. For member station KQED, Danielle Venton reports on how people who live in flood-prone areas are preparing. Rain falls on Kristen Thurman's home, right on the banks of the Russian River in the town of Monterio. Please, come on in. Flood prep for her is about having food on hand and getting organized. We right now are in the process of being prepared to do a quick emptying of that basement if we see indeed that it's going to come. This means getting things up. She and her husband Dan are pros at this by now. They've lived in this house for 40 years. For those of us who have been through it a long time, it's just a tedious, stressful, tiresome, but incredibly awesome <laughs> experience just watching the river. They were in this house during the worst flood on record here in Sonoma County. The year was 1986. And the water came up to one level and stayed there for about a week. And then storms hit and it just came up so fast it was incredible. And it was about three feet in this house. We stayed on the second floor for about four days and just stayed there. Kristen's husband, Dan, would pull on waiters and go downstairs to get cans of food from the kitchen. One storm hit after another, similar to the chain of atmospheric rivers now stacked up out in the Pacific Ocean and heading toward the West Coast. We had been here a few years, and um, I was pregnant, and we had a three-year-old. And it was the famous Valentine's flood now, they call it, because it was over Valentine's weekend. They learned a lot about what to expect and bought flood insurance. The next bad deluge was in 1995. After that, Kristen and Dan took out a second mortgage to elevate their living space by eight feet. The most costly storm damage along the West Coast tends to cluster along the Russian River, mostly due to the river overflowing its banks. But we're kind of glued to the various monitors and river monitors. Tim Miller is executive director of West County Community Services. Exactly what level the flood-prone Russian River peaks at determines who is affected and where. Everybody knows what floods at what foot out here. The forecast for Monday predicts many roads will be impassable, so Miller's organization has already shut down its senior center and mental health counseling center, although they're still offering services over the phone. And Miller is evaluating whether those in the homeless shelter need to be bused to higher ground. Additionally, outreach workers have spent days walking creeks and riverbeds speaking to the unhoused who live there. Getting people to move their encampments from 25 feet in the riverbed either into our shelter or just higher up so they're not taken away by the flood. Overall, while Miller is busy getting ready, he's not scared. People out here are generally prepared. They've gone through this many, many times. Like resident Kristen Thurman, who volunteers with West County Community Services. She cooks meals for the nearby homeless shelter. She and Dan are most worried about people who've recently moved to or started businesses in the area. They don't know. They don't know what's coming. I wish that we had more education on what it means to live on a flooding river. In fact, they've wondered if they should run seminars about living with floods to help others prepare. 
But for now, they're prepping their basement, checking in with neighbors, hunkering down, and hoping for the best. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Venton in Monterio, California. One of humanity's great mysteries is no longer afoot. Scientists have figured out why humans walk with a double bounce. Our ancestors did something that is called endurance hunting, where animals essentially just run away from you and you don't run after them, but you just walk after them. Tomorrow in Weekend Edition Sunday with Aisha, we learn more about the evolution and benefits of our bouncy steps. You can tune into that conversation by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Children take in everything. For children in Ukraine this past year, that includes the sights and the sounds of war. Shortly after Russia launched its invasion nearly a year ago, a college student named Yustina Pavluk and her mother founded an art therapy program for children in Ukraine. The art produced by many youngsters who are living through loss and fear, bombs, cold, and darkness is now on display in an exhibit at the Ukrainian Institute of Modern Art in Chicago. Justyna Pavluk joins us now, along with uh, the exhibit's curator, Adrian Kochman. Welcome to you both. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. What do we see in many of these works of art? So um, we can see the story of every kid, what they see, what they feel, how they feel. And uh, they are happy moments or they are horror moments. So uh, we see real life of every Ukrainians right now. I see a lot of images of kind of bombed out sites and then nature has overtaken the emptiness and the pits of earth. A number of the students are looking to a future where nature is bright and hopeful and happy and there's no real evidence of the kind of brutality and violence that we are witnessing uh, today. Yustina Pavluk, tell us how you began to start this program, which I understand was almost immediately when the invasion began. Yes, so from the third day of becoming of a big war in Ukraine, we understand that we need to do something. Uh, me and my mom, Natalia Pavluk, she is an artist and also she is uh, a lecturer in the University of Painting. She has her own art studio. So we know both how to work with kids and we start calling to all orphanages or hospitals. In the next day, we come there and start working with those kids. Adrian uh, Kochman, how did you hear about their work and what made you think, I've got to bring this for people to see? Uh, we learned about it directly through a board member who has family in Lviv. We uh, were able to see the work that uh, the children were producing because Justina and Natalia have been posting periodically on Facebook and other social media channels. So we thought it would be a very poignant and strong exhibit. It needed to be shown because the situation and the voices of children are not getting the attention that they need to be getting. Are there pictures that particularly stay with you? Yes, some of them drive me to tears and I need to walk out of the gallery. There's one 
of a child that drew um, her father, who is fighting. He's in soldier's uniform. His whole figure is, has a white haze to it. Uh, he's looking out into a field. And uh, you, Stina, mentioned that, like, why is his figure kind of whitish? And he said, well, he's not with us anymore. It's his spirit that is guarding Ukraine and is still fighting and helping us. Yeah. So there are images like that. And then the contrast is an image, let's say, of the uh, <laughs> this little boy, um, Sava, who drew a Russian sniper who has been held out for so long looking for someone to shoot that a bird has started nesting on his helmet. The sky looks like actually Van Gogh's Starry Night. It's this beautiful radiant blue with these golden yellow um, stars there. And the uh, sniper is just sitting there. There's like nothing for him to do. He's become obsolete. And so we, I walk through the gallery and I look at an image like that and it brings a, a, a smile to my face and a sense of hope. But then I also think of the child that lost her father. Eustina, you must sometimes look at these paintings and wonder what's happened to the artist. Sometimes we start crying, but we need to be strong and uh, continue working. It's so so helpful for us because we see the bright in their eyes. We see that uh, those kids continue living no matter what's wrong. Those kids find something good, using bright colors and move on. And Adrian Kochman, what do you what do you hope people who walk through your exhibit take out, out of the street and into their own lives with them? That we can't take what we have for granted that we're so lucky not to be in this situation, but also to remember the fighting and the spirit of these children. Our awareness brings them hope as well. They know that we are seeing their work, actually. All of the kids say that after our masterclass, they say that this is the best day of their life. Adrian Kochman uh, is curator at the Ukrainian Institute of Modern Art in Chicago and uh, Yustina Pavluk has, uh, has an exhibit there. It's called Children of War. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. Need a weekend edition from NPR News. Buying a home in Canada just got harder for some foreigners. New law came into effect that will prohibit some foreign investors from purchasing residential properties in that country for the next two years. Andy Yan is director of the city program at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. Thanks very much for being with us. You're welcome, Scott. Why has the government introduced this policy? 
Well, I think it begins with the fundamental belief that homes shouldn't be commodities, that uh, Minister Hussein, the Minister of Housing, Diversity and Inclusion, I think started, I think, the introduction of this uh, of this law, I think, with this fundamental belief and through which I think that it's a number of, I think, changes within the federal, provincial and local uh, levels of government to ensure that housing is affordable and accessible for all Canadians. When you say home shouldn't be commodities, you're suggesting something that people have suggested has happened in parts of London and, for that matter, midtown Manhattan. Indeed. And I think that it's the idea that homes should be occupied, that homes um, shouldn't be kept empty. Uh, what's interesting is to actually see uh, what's happened in the state, provincial and local levels. I think through which there have been uh, legis- there's been legislation and taxes when it comes to empty homes and foreign buying, I think also has released um, a sizable number back into the rental pool. Are foreigners buying property the reason that, that housing prices are high? Well, I think that it's one of them. But then, of course, it's also the fact that Canada is a very, very big country. And I think that depending on where you are looking, that the role of foreign capital has been, I think, one of the flows of money into the housing markets for specific cities across the country. Did New Zealand try something like this a few years ago? I think New Zealand did try something like this, but then I think what's also happened is really some sizable changes in terms of finance, in terms of ultra-low interest rates, access to credit, and really enacted a level of other types of demand that also inflated their housing markets. I have to ask, Mr. Yan, is this, does this policy have more to do with politics than economics? I think that it's really one that I think looks formidable and dominant, but yet when you look at the details, it's actually dulled. There are, I think, any number of sizable exemptions uh, for those that are non-Canadians, I think, through which might really kind of dull down the effects of really what the intent of the legislation ought to be. For example, if a foreigner is a permanent resident, they can still buy a home, right? Uh, Very much so, as well as a student or a refugee or somebody who is working for a foreign corporation, so that there are a number of avenues through which non-Canadian citizens can still purchase uh, homes. uh, Does this make Canada seem a little less open to the world? Canadians are, are proud of being open and accessible and a welcoming country. Well, I think that it's really trying to stay in line with what's happened with other countries in terms of keeping their housing markets open and accessible. That I think that something like this foreign buyer's ban, in addition to, I think, other pieces of legislation when it comes to um, supply, demand, and finance, are really intended to keep the country open. That the Canadian dream can still stay alive as, as immigrants, I think, also are struggling in, in Canada's housing markets. Andy Yan, Director of the City Program at Simon Fraser University. Thanks very much for being with us. My total pleasure. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The FDA has approved a new Alzheimer's drug from Cambridge-based Biogen and a Japanese partner. The drug, Lakembi, is designed for patients with a mild case or in the early stages of the disease. 
Clinical trial results were clear-cut in showing that Lakembi modestly slows cognitive decline associated with the disease. That contrasts with Biogen's other Alzheimer's drug, Aduhelm, which provided modest benefits in one trial and failed in another trial. Law enforcement authorities continue to investigate the case of a missing woman from Cohasset. Anna Walsh is a married mother of three. She was last seen at home in the early morning hours on New Year's Day. She was due to catch a flight to Washington, D.C. for work, but never made it to Logan Airport in Boston. The Cohasset police chief says it is unclear whether she took a ride share as had been expected and says Walsh has not been heard from since January 1st. In sports tonight, the Celtics are on the road against the Spurs and the Bruins take on the Sharks in San Jose. It's 36 degrees in Boston with clouds today and highs in the mid-40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel and Haydn Society, presenting Beethoven and Mozart, masterfully performed and passionately shared. Tomorrow at Symphony Hall. Tickets at HandelandHaydn.org. On this week's On the Media, we go in search of answers to questions about the economy. Like, if employment numbers are good, but people feel like we're in a recession, are we? Brooke, you've used the word recession eight million times in this interview. This is how the media contributes to the vibe that we're in a recession or could be going into it. The economy. It's all about the vibes on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Today at 1 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at ajws.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Deepti Kapoor's age of vice begins with a crash, and it never lets up. A rich man's car, New Delhi, 3 a.m., 2004, kills five people who live and sleep on the street. The man at the wheel is Ajay. He is 22 and stinks of whiskey. He's sent to jail where he's attacked, but then Ajay attacks his attackers. You see, he's a Wadi, a man. And slowly we begin to see the life that put him behind the wheel and which steers through so many forces of modern India. Age of Vice is being acclaimed as hypnotic and has already been compared to the great Gatsby and the Godfather. Deepti Kapoor joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Help us understand your your central character in the course of life that brings Ajay to Delhi, because he he grew up in the kind of poverty that I think even very poor Americans might find difficult to understand. Absolutely, I mean Ajay is um, I would say an oppressed everyman. He's a, he's a young boy whose father dies tragically, and then he gets sold in order to pay off this family debt, and he makes his way to the mountains. When he becomes slightly free at the age of 16 or 17, he starts to work in a cafe in the mountains where he meets Sonny, who is the only son and heir to a big criminal business fortune in New Delhi. And then he makes his way to Delhi. And 
I see Ajay as the heart of the story. Mm -hmm. um, he's inspired by a young boy I did actually meet in the mountains when I was traveling in a guest house who had a story of loss, who had a story of being sent away to pay off the family and some family debts. And then I combined his story with the story of young men that I used to see in my 20s when I lived in Delhi. And I had a lot of very wealthy friends and in these private mansions, you always had these invisible men who catered and served you and made sure that you were always well looked after, but who didn't have any personal lives, or that's what you thought. They were meant to just be invisible. Ajay, in fact, muses at one point, I'm going to quote your word, he becomes a name to be called and used, turn on like a tap. How so? Because he's just... He's invisible, but he's also the person who makes sure that every wish mm -hmm. is fulfilled, even before you know that you have that need. And I have seen people like that. He's, in the beginning anyway, really happy and eager to please. Yeah. Tell us about Sonny and what is. Because Sonny seems like he wants to do something different or something better. He wants to use the riches the family has accumulated through a lot of nefarious enterprises and use them for something good. Yes, absolutely. Sonny is, he's really a tragic figure. He's the heir to this massive fortune, but he's not ruthless like his father. It was interesting because I also wanted to look at the excess that post-liberalization India started to experience, where you had these vast fortunes being made overnight, especially by people who knew how to say, maybe rig the system. And then coming back to Sonny, he's just, he wants to please his father, but he also wants to launder his family reputation and he, all, and he wants to do good. So he has all these competing ideas. He doesn't want to be that, that gangster's son anymore. He feels like he's been misunderstood, right? By just be being cast as a rich kid and a gangster son. Yeah. And also, um, Delhi at that point of time was still a place where people like Sunny were looked down mm -hmm. upon. And that's where we go to Neda. She is the daughter of a very culturally powerful elite family. Neda is the reporter conveniently. Yeah. Well, yes. And, uh, and Sonny wants to prove himself to people like her. They fall in love, but it's also because Sonny wants to say that I count too. I matter. I matter in this new India anyway. You were a reporter in New Delhi for a number of years. May I ask, when you were doing, uh, no doubt, a conscientious job as a reporter, were you also taking notes as a novelist? Oh, yeah. I was taking a lot of mental notes. A lot of times these notes were being taken while I, I was stoned or drunk, um, I was basically observing all the time. I think somewhere deep down, I had a subconscious impulse that one day all of this will go somewhere else. I never thought I'd would be a novelist at that point of time that came later. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to lie, I did always think that this is great material. It has yeah. to be used somewhere. I can't let something pass. Were you stoned or drunk a lot? Uh, was this just in the in the ordinary course of being a young person, or what was going on in your life, may we ask? Oh, I suppose I could say I had some tragedy. I had a father who died quite tragically when I was in university after a long illness. Mm. And then my first boyfriend also died within a year 
and I was about 22. So I think I became very reckless. I had a car and that was the biggest present. My brother left the city and uh, to work and he left me his car. So I used to drive around angry and I just wanted to dive right into the heart of the city, take all its decadence in. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sorry for the pain that you went through. Well, thank you. I, mean, I was able to channel it in the, into the writing. So. Yeah. Is that how you feel about the story you've done here? We learn lessons through loss after all that, well, you didn't just let the lessons lie around, you put them into a novel. Yeah, I, and I think what it made me do was just become more sensitive to the pain of others. My mother had a driver at that time who was in Prozac. His brother was in jail for murder. You know, he had all these stories of the city and I was also on Prozac. So, you know, we had the common feeling between us and he used to tell me all his stories. And, and all of that also went into, into the novels. I've got to tell you, as someone who loved this novel, at some point I rooted for all three of the major characters. And then at other points, I would say to myself, oh, come on, don't do that. But I, I guess that's life, isn't it? It's just, that's who we are. I mean, I think then that my job is done, that you ended up rooting for everyone. I want through my books to at least create that kind of radical empathy that you feel for the characters even when you know they're terribly flawed. So I'm very happy to hear that. Deepti Kapoor, her novel, Age of Ice. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Gosh darn it. John Burnett's fixing to hang up his hat. Retire, that is, leaving NPR after 36 years of stellar, eloquent, imperishable reporting with this network, 43 years as a journalist. He's been one of NPR's signature voices covering wars, hurricanes, border troubles. And news of his retirement around these parts is about as welcome as a porcupine in a nudist colony. John Burnett, who is an authentic Texan, would never talk that way, joins us now from his home studio in Austin. John, thanks so much. Hey, Scott. How do you feel? <sighs> it's been a hell of a run. And I don't want to be, as we say, uh, a bone in your enchilada, but it's time. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing lasts forever. And uh, man, what a privilege to have, uh, as my father once told me enviously, Johnny, you've got a skeleton key to the world. And the people that I've interviewed over these uh, 36 years have stayed with me, uh, their wisdom, their agony, their humor, their grit. And, you know, you have to drop everything and go cover a school shooting in Uvalde. That's when you don't love being a journalist. It's just soul crushing. Um, but, uh, you know, most of the time I've loved this job more than I can say. Uh, I remember once when I was in the middle of a feature about a, a scrappy, a small town newspaper in northern New Mexico, and I was just having a ball with this story. And my daughter, Helen, asked me with utter sincerity, Dowie, do they pay you to do these stories or do you pay them? Oh, let's remember a few of those stories. What's one that comes immediately to mind? Well, that's an easy one, Scott. It's the story of Carlos Garcia, the leaf player of the Socolo in Mexico City's historic center. I was walking to an interview and I heard this curious sound that was a cross between a kazoo and a violin and a whistle. And I followed it, which is what we do in radio uh, with these big ears. And uh, it was a street busker, well, one arm, who was playing a leaf of ivy, playing it with 
soul, with intonation, with vibrato. And I ended up doing a story on Carlos Garcia. And what happened after that story, Scott, is that the, the Kronos Quartet heard the story. They'd been looking for Carlos, who was a legend on the streets of Mexico City. They found him. Now let's hear what Carlos Garcia, the leaf player, sounds like with this lush string ensemble. Let me ask you about hurricanes. You um, filed from Naples, Florida after Hurricane Ian this year. Apparently that was your 20th hurricane beginning with Hugo in 1989. Is there a hurricane that stands out? Uh, No question. It was Hurricane Katrina in 2005. That was like covering a biblical calamity. I mean, to witness a great American city dissolving in the floodwaters, the rule of law melted away. There was no 911. No electricity, no internet, no transportation, no water, no services, and barely any communications. Um, And then to be the first responder that some folks met after they were trudging out of the sunken Lower Ninth Ward. And of course, NPR Chronicle, the slow rebirth of New Orleans over the years. And I really, I think that was my biggest story, uh, all in all, Scott. Yeah. Let me ask you about a very telling, historic exchange, really, you had with, uh, with Robert Siegel of all things concerted, about thousands of people who were stranded at the convention center. Right. They'd been gathering there um, from all over the city and the heat and the squalor and the chaos. Um, Here's what they sounded like uh, when we opened uh, our microphone on the sidewalk. We don't have no cold water. We don't have water to wash our kids. Everything dying. Ain't nobody saying nothing. The bathroom is Everything is filthy. My baby got to use the bathroom right now. Yeah, four people dying in here. And that same afternoon, I told uh, Robert Siegel about the appalling conditions alive on All Things Considered. And miraculously, I was able to get a signal on a mobile phone because, you know, all the cell towers had been blown down. Three blocks from here in the Ernest Morial Convention Center, there are, I estimate, 2,000 people living like animals inside the city convention center and around it. They've been there since uh, the hurricane. There's no food. There's absolutely no water. There's no medical treatment. There's no police and no security. Robert Siegel had just interviewed the Homeland Security Secretary, Michael Chertoff, who was, you know, the boss of this uh, rescue operation. And Chertoff had said, well, we're not aware of any trouble at the convention center and your reporter must be reporting rumors. Chertoff later told Newsweek that that NPR interview was the first time that he'd been alerted to that humanitarian disaster at the convention center. After the interview, uh, DHS sent in a team. They confirmed what was going on that we had reported, and then they airdropped supplies. John, you've covered so much around the world from Central America, Iraq, and Afghanistan. I, I wonder if you take any particular lessons from a lot of those difficult experiences. You know, it has been a long career, Scott, and I've thought a lot about this. Um, if I could wave my wand and make one simple change in the world, elect more women leaders— There's too much testosterone in positions of power. They get us in these foolish, macho, prideful, and unnecessary conflicts over and over and over. At the grassroots level, and I know anybody who's worked overseas knows this uh, on disasters, for every malefactor who commits a mass shooting or, or blows up a bomb, there are countless souls who rush into the breach to help their fellow 
humans uh, who are suffering. And I think that's why I'm not cynical after all these years. Um, you just, you know, you look, look to the helpers. Got to ask you a question you're going to hear a lot. Favorite interview? <laughs> there are so many. Uh, there was uh, Dr. John McRabinack, the legendary piano professor of New Orleans, uh, the Czech barbecue queen of Lexington, Texas. I just keep having great characters that I get to interview, Scott. The latest is Pastor Chris Battle. In fact, I had him in a piece in early December, and I described him as a big man with a pipe clenched and his generous smile. He walked away from 30 years as a Baptist minister to start a community garden in Knoxville, Tennessee, and people that come there to hear his sermons and, and then dig in the dirt and deliver vegetables to poor people. We were trying to create this community that people who learn to love each other and ultimately love the world and transform it through collard greens. <laughs> and okra. <laughs> I have to tell you, Scott, I don't hear enough of these kind of people on public radio anymore. Real people, authentic voices. So many of our stories now quote academics and advocates and experts and you know, just click out of Zoom and get out of the office and get your shoes muddy. I mean, that's how you meet characters and tell stories. You're so right. I got to ask you to play the harmonica. <laughs> you are a genuinely great professional quality recorded harmonica player. It's my other life, Scott. <laughs> I got to tell you, I love it. I've always had a harp with me on all my stories. It's always in the equipment bag right there with extra batteries and a, a spare mic. Yeah. So, okay, here you go. You twist my arm. Um, a Blue Monk by uh, Thelonious Monk. John Burnett, 36 years with NPR. Thanks so much. It's been an honor, Scott. I'll miss him. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News, where B.J. Lederman still does our theme music. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, Featuring wines from around the world with NPR-inspired bottles like Weekend Edition Cabernet. Available to adults 21 or older. More at nprwineclub.org radio. And from the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project. Providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. This is NPR. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 36 degrees in Boston, coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition Saturday continues. Mostly cloudy today and highs reaching the mid-40s. Tonight, the lows will drop into the mid-20s. You can expect sunny skies tomorrow with Sunday's temperatures in the upper 30s. Monday should be partly sunny with a slight chance of some snow and highs in the low 40s and on Tuesday plenty of sunshine and highs in the low 40s.
Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service, and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers, and others who create Mornigation every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. In case you woke up wondering, the Honorable Kevin McCarthy of the state of California is duly elected Speaker of the House of Representatives. It took 15 ballots. NPR Susan Davis with the latest after a long night. And later, Ukraine wants tanks, but what will it get from the U.S.? Concerns in Senegal as a prominent journalist is arrested. Marin Alsop, who shattered the glass ceiling above the conductor's podium on new works by women composers. Is Damar Hamlin's injury a new warning about the dangers of pro football and Harry Melling on playing Edgar Allan Poe when he was a diffident West Point cadet? First, our newscast at Saturday, January 7, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. After 15 rounds of voting and intense negotiations with a group of Republican holdouts, California's Kevin McCarthy is now House Speaker. McCarthy took the gavel overnight, and the House can begin its work, with members now sworn in. But NPR's Ron Elving says there may be trouble ahead. He closed his speech last night or early this morning by saying, quote, I never give up. And after this week, you have to give him that. But it also seems apparent the man wanted to be Speaker so badly, he let his adversaries rewrite the job description for him. And we'll find out soon just how much trouble that will cause for him and for the rest of the government. McCarthy won the Speaker's post after flipping more than a dozen conservative holdouts and then persuading the others to vote present, lowering the threshold for victory to 216. After a brief break, more storms headed toward the West Coast. From member station KQED, Danielle Vinton has more. For those who got ready for rain, wind, and flooding, the advice is to stay ready. Braden Murdoch with the National Weather Service says two more storm systems are headed toward the Northern California coast. The first of which will be um, mostly going into Saturday morning and lasting through Sunday afternoon. Not as strong as what we saw on the 4th, nor what we saw on New Year's. Murdoch says the second system will come just hours after the first. The more aggressive system is going to be coming through Sunday night going through a good portion of Tuesdays. Gusts of up to 70 miles per hour are expected in some places, up to six inches of rain in San Francisco and as much as nine inches in the mountains. Roads along the Russian River in Sonoma County are expected to become impassable by early Monday. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Venton. 
Ukraine's president praising the United States for including Bradley armored vehicles in the latest multi-billion dollar military aid package. Volodymyr Zelensky says they are exactly what's needed. Germany is also sending Ukraine armored vehicles as Russia and Ukraine are reported to be trading artillery fire today despite a temporary ceasefire Russia declared for Orthodox Christmas. In Iran today, two men were hanged for allegedly killing a member of the Basijimber military force. As NPR's Peter Kenyon reports. In a statement, the Iranian judiciary said Mohammed Mehdi Karami and Sayed Mohammed Husseini were hanged. The statement called the pair, quote, principal perpetrators of the crime of killing a militia member. Amnesty International said the court that convicted the 22-year-old Karami relied on forced confessions, and Husseini's lawyer said his client had been severely tortured and his convention had no legal basis. Amnesty has said at least 26 others face possible death sentences. The rights group condemned what it called sham trials designed to intimidate protesters. Demonstrations broke out after the death of a young Kurdish woman in the custody of Iran's morality police. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The new Alzheimer's drug from Cambridge-based Biogen and a Japanese partner that has approval from the FDA is designed for patients with a mild case or in the early stages of the disease. The Food and Drug Administration yesterday approved the use of Lakembi. Uh, studies show it modestly slows cognitive decline associated with the disease. Biogen's other Alzheimer's drug, Adjuhelm, provides modest, provided modest benefits in one trial but failed in another trial. Newly sworn in, Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey has signed her first executive order. The order signed yesterday will create a state climate chief, a cabinet-level position, and the first position of its kind in the country. The chief will coordinate all state policy relating to climate change. Healey appointed EPA Deputy General Counsel Melissa Hofer to the role. A new study finds gas stoves are responsible for more than 15 percent of childhood asthma cases in Massachusetts. Dr. Brita Lundberg is chair of the board at Greater Boston Physicians for Social Responsibility. The group was not part of the study, but she says she is not surprised by the findings. It's in line with the data that has really been coming out over the last 30 years. I guess it just underscores what a significant public health concern this is. Lundberg says about half of all households in the state use natural gas for cooking. She says a simple solution to reduce the asthma risk in children is to use an electric stove instead of a gas one. Local radio station WUMB is paying tribute to the late Dick Pleasance. Pleasance died in November at the age of 75 after a long fight with Parkinson's disease. He hosted folk music shows for 40 years on WUMB and WGBH. WUMB is hosting a folk concert in his honor at the Somerville Theater tonight. It's sold out but will be live streamed on Facebook. It's 36 degrees in Boston Heights today in the mid-40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thanks for being with us. 
The Honorable Kevin McCarthy of the State of California, having received a majority of the votes cast, is duly elected Speaker of the House of Representatives. But it took 15 rounds of voting over five days. He was finally, however, a Speaker of the House, and Speaker McCarthy addressed the House shortly after midnight today. But I hope one thing is clear after this week. I never give up. It was the first time in a century it took more than a round of voting to elect a speaker and seems to come with a price. NPR national political correspondent Susan Davis joins us. Susan, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Scott. They did everything but turn him upside down and shake out his pocket change, <laughs> didn't they? They might have tried that, too. I wasn't in all the backdoor meetings. Uh, I, I mean, on top of everything else, he agreed to changing the rules of the House to allow one member to bring up a motion to throw him out. We could go through this again. What else did he agree to do? Some of it's in writing. Some of it's just handshake agreements. But he did make agreements with a faction of hard right conservatives that he would put more members aligned with them on key committees, including the Rules Committee, which plays a big role in deciding what bills go to the floor, that he'd allow more time before major bills could come up for a vote, that he wouldn't let those big behemoth spending bills come up for the floor, that he would insist that spending bills be voted on one by one in the Congress. He also agreed to loosen restrictions to make it easier for all members to offer amendments to any bills and handshake agreements to allow votes on certain types of legislation, like enacting term limits and balancing the budget. So in essence, did Kevin McCarthy, uh, in order to become speaker, give up a lot of the power that traditionally comes with the office of speaker? He certainly enters the speakership in a weaker position than any of his recent predecessors. Also worth noting that an outside super PAC aligned with McCarthy put out a statement this week saying that they would not engage in any open Republican primaries. You know, typically party leaders like to play a role in deciding who their candidates are and helping elect them. But this has also been a point of contention with the right. So in order to get the job, he had to water down the speaker's political power, the legislative power to decide, you know, what goes to the floor and his ability to drive the agenda. Now, on some of this, it's more broadly popular. A lot of Republicans support having more input in the legislative process. But again, if he runs afoul of any faction, any one member, he could face a referendum vote on his speakership because of that rules change he had to agree to. So, you know, there's so much focus on the hard right, but don't lose sight of the fact that a lot of these Republicans come from swing districts. You know, this is a really narrow majority, and and, and he's going to have this tricky balancing act of trying to keep the far right happy, but not ailing the moderate members who delivered the majority. We also have to note the timing, because yesterday marked two years since the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Yeah, and many of the Republicans who tried to derail McCarthy were also some of the most vocal election deniers, folks like Scott Perry of Pennsylvania and Andy Biggs of Arizona. After that attack, McCarthy had initially distanced himself from former President Trump, but today they're close political allies. McCarthy even made a point to praise Trump at a press conference after the vote. I do want to especially thank uh, President Trump. I don't think he should anybody should doubt his influence. Trump endorsed McCarthy for speaker, and Trump obviously is also running for president again. So one of the political things to watch is how McCarthy might wield that power to help Trump win the nomination, especially as parts of the party would like to see them move on and nominate someone else. Sue, does this all foreshadow what the new Congress is going to be like with a fractured majority and just a four-seat majority? 
probably, you know, even if Republicans get 218 votes on everything they want to do, it's still divided government. You know, every bill is going to have to be negotiated with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and President Biden. So McCarthy might have to expend a lot of political capital to pass a conservative agenda in the House. That's dead on arrival. Uh, but he's going to have very real fights to navigate with Democrats to keep the government open, to raise the nation's borrowing limit without alienating those mainstream conservatives who want to prove they can be a responsible governing party, especially after this week. NPR national political correspondent Susan Davis. Sue, I've talked to NPR executives. Take off the morning. (laughs) I appreciate that, Scott. The Biden administration is sending its largest single military aid package yet to Ukraine, and it includes some new hardware. NPR's Greg Myrie recently returned from a six-week reporting trip to Ukraine and joins us now. Greg, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Scott. And what's in this package? Well, it really runs the gamut. It's a wide range of armored vehicles, artillery systems, air defense systems, ammunition to replace stocks that are running low. The overall package is right around $3 billion, larger than any of the 28 previous packages sent by the Biden administration. And this is significant for a couple reasons. Uh, First, it sends the clear message that more heavy fighting is expected. A lot of these weapons are designed for ground combat with Russian troops or possibly a Ukrainian offensive. And second, the Ukrainians are extremely concerned that the U.S. and other NATO countries might lose interest and international support could dwindle. But this shows there's very strong military and political support still going their way. We should note uh, Ukraine has been pleading, I think that's a fair word to use, pleading for tanks. Instead, it is getting armored vehicles. Remind us of the difference. Yeah, so the U.S. will be sending dozens of Bradley fighting vehicles. Now, at first blush, they resemble tanks. They travel on treads. They have armor on the body, a gun in the front, and they can destroy enemy tanks. But it's not quite as heavy and powerful as the mainline U.S. battle tanks. Now, the Pentagon says that tanks require more maintenance and training. um, And we've also seen the Biden administration incrementally increase the systems that it provides to Ukraine, while often stopping short or just a little bit short of everything that Ukraine wants. Still, these Bradley vehicles will be an upgrade uh, in the level of protection and firepower for Ukraine. And Ukraine's foreign minister says it's a very good start to the year, showing that Ukraine is getting weapons that it couldn't get last year. Greg, so many reports have focused on uh, the the Russian uh, effort to knock out the electricity grid in Ukraine. Tell us what's happening on that front, please. Yeah, the Russian bombing campaign hasn't let up, and the expectation is it will continue all winter. But the Ukrainians are proving remarkably resilient. I mean, one recent example, Russia has unleashed more than 80 drone attacks in recent days. Ukraine says it shot them all down. Now, the past three months of Russian missile and drone attacks have taken a cumulative toll. Ukraine can't produce all the power it needs every day, maybe 70 percent or so. Ukrainians typically have to endure daily power outages, but Ukraine keeps patching up the power grid. So far, the Russians have not been able to knock out power for extended periods, days or weeks at a time. Of course, we're approaching the one-year mark uh, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the war. What do you think we should be alert for in the days and weeks ahead? 
Scott, we've heard a lot of talk about the war slowing this winter, but so far we're not seeing that. There's still very heavy daily fighting. Now, a lot of military analysts say that the Russians have little prospect for making any major advances this winter. They seem to be mostly digging in and entrenching their existing positions. The Ukrainians, in a bit of a contrast, do feel the clock is ticking, that if the war becomes a stalemate, the pressure will grow for a negotiated settlement with the Russians still occupying a large chunk of Ukrainian territory. So it is considered quite possible that we could see a Ukrainian offensive this winter. And Pierre's Greg Nyrie, thanks so much. My pleasure, Scott. Senegal is widely seen as a peaceful and stable democracy in West Africa. But the arrest of a prominent journalist there has sparked unrest and fears that government critics are being targeted. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reports the arrest comes as the country's president may seek a third term. Journalist Pape Alenian was arrested in November, leading crowds of protesters to immediately demand his release. Now, months later, the protests are growing more desperate. Niang went on a two-week hunger strike and is now being held in hospital. His lawyers told NPR his condition has deteriorated with damage to his vital organs. Niang was charged for publishing information that could harm national security. He posted a video report on a politically sensitive case concerning rape charges against a popular opposition politician and potential 2024 presidential candidate. Salam, salam, la famille In this video, Niang said he found secret police information, proving that police knew the politician Usman Sonko was innocent. Many in Senegal say Niang's arrest has sent a warning. Senegal is a country usually thought of as stable and peaceful, but these are tense times. Elections are due to be held next year. President Macky Sall is coming towards the end of his second term in office, but has been coy on whether he will seek a controversial third term. And in his New Year's address, he didn't provide any more clarity. His ambiguity has sparked unrest and criticism by the opposition and the media. Sadibu Maran, director of Reporters Without Borders in West Africa, says this latest turn of events is causing widespread concern. Press freedom in a country like Senegal, which was once a flagship of the press, he says, is in danger, is under threat. Criticism of Niang's treatment is growing. The UN Rapporteur for Human Rights Defenders has called for his release and many in Senegal say the country's image as a stable democracy is under strain. Emmanuel Akimotu, NPR News, Lagos. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. And ahead on Weekend Edition, you'll hear about the film The Pale Blue Eye. 
in which a detective investigates a series of murders linked to his own past alongside a young Edgar Allan Poe. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. WBUR occasionally gives you the chance to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising. You're not required to make a donation to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated entities are not eligible for drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to WBUR.org. It's 38 degrees in Boston, clouds today, and highs in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. California Republican Kevin McCarthy is starting his first full day as House Speaker today. After days of failed votes and negotiations with a group of Republican holdouts this week, McCarthy won the Speaker election in the 15th round of voting that wrapped up overnight. Officials at Rich Neck Elementary School in Newport News, Virginia, say the school will be closed on Monday following the shooting of a teacher. Police have a six-year-old student in custody and say the shooting was not an accident. And the NFL returns to the field today for the first time since Monday night's game when the Buffalo Bills' DeMar Hamlin had to have his heartbeat restored on the field during the Bills game against Cincinnati. Doctors say he's showing substantial improvement. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at wtgrantfdn.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. I'm an optimist. That's Arizona's Governor Katie Hobbs speaking at her inauguration on Thursday. I believe that now is the perfect time to move past division and partisanship and return to a path of cooperation and progress. But how hard or easy is that following a bruising campaign? Governor Hobbs, oh, Governor Hobbs, thank you for joining us. Okay, you anticipate my question. How hard or easy is that? Well, uh, it's, it's not going to be easy. I think we are in the most polarized times that many of us have seen. And there's just a lot of, of animosity. And, um, but I think I see that as a time of opportunity, that the voters elected us to tackle issues that we're facing, and we have to work together to do that. Mm. As I don't have to remind you, you won by 17,000 votes out of more than 2 million cast. Yes. So what do you say to people who not just voted for your Republican opponent, Carrie Lake, but... Uh, but agree with her that uh, they don't see the election as, uh, even though it's been, of course, legally ruled valid beyond dispute, they just don't accept that. Uh, it is really unfortunate that so-called political leaders like my former opponent, Carrie Lake, continue to beat this drum and mislead people. Uh, I don't know whether she believes the lies that she's telling or not, but the problem is that people do. And that makes it hard to govern. And I think that's probably part of the objective. President Biden announced a new border security measures this week and says he's going to visit the border next week. 
are your resources in Arizona stretched thin to receive and care for migrants? They are. What do you need? Uh, well, for the mayors uh, that I've talked to and their law enforcement, um, it's the potential lifting of Title 42 and what that means for um, the way migrants will come into their communities. And Well, forgive me, Governor. Are you talking about lifting Title 42 or are you in favor of uh, expanding it, in a sense, as, as President Biden did this week? Um. Oh, well, I um, I mean, I, right now it's not an, it's an issue and it looks like it's going to be in place, but, but the, these conversations were in preparation for the possibility that that was going to happen. President Biden announced plans to expand Title 42, uh, and under this, U.S. will deny people from Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Haiti the chance to apply for asylum if they cross the border with Mexico without authorization. Do you agree with that? Well, I think that what the communities in our state were concerned about was lifting Title 42 without a real plan in place. What we really need, because Title 42 is not immigration policy, it is health care policy. Um, it was enacted- Occasioned by the, by the COVID. Uh, yes, yes. And so what we need to really address this problem in a comprehensive way is comprehensive immigration reform. I have to tell you, Governor, I have been blessed enough to cover political campaigns in Arizona over 20 years ago. I have always heard people calling for comprehensive bipartisan immigration reform, and I don't think it's a newsflash to tell you it's not going to happen by next week. Yeah. What, what, are, what are you going to do with the situation that is occurring right on your border? I think that um, working to provide meaningful relief is going to go much further than political stunts like flying migrants to Martha's Vineyard or dropping them off on the vice president's doorstep. And I'll continue to be a voice for what Arizona needs with our federal um, government and continue to work with local leaders in how the state can address the needs that they have. Removing it from the um, category of stunt, should other states step up to receive the, the large number of people who are arriving at the border? New York, Illinois, Massachusetts, I'll, I'll throw a few examples out. Arizona has been busing folks as well, not to the degree of a political stunt that, that we saw, that the two instances I mentioned, but they are getting on buses with resources, going to Washington, D.C. I think that a better solution is giving them resources and getting them to their final destination. And that would um, eliminate a lot of headache and, and working with other states that want to take them, I think, is one way we can look at how we can do that. Governor Katie Hobbs of Arizona, thanks so much. Thank you. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has approved a drug that appears to slow down the progression of Alzheimer's disease. And because John Hamilton reports the medication is likely to reach many more patients than a similar product that flopped after receiving accelerated approval in 2021. The new drug, known as Lecanemab, will be marketed under the brand name Lecambi. Maria Carrillo, chief science officer of the Alzheimer's Association, says it could help millions of people in the early stages of the disease. This is a milestone for people eligible for this treatment, for their families, for the research community. This is absolutely a game changer. Lakembi received what's known as accelerated approval based on its ability to remove the sticky substance amyloid from the brain. The FDA is likely to consider a full approval later this year. That decision will hinge on a large study published in November showing that Lakembi slowed the loss of memory and thinking by 27 percent. 
Carrillo expects the drug to get full approval. The science speaks for itself. The science is telling us that lowering amyloid is leading to clinical benefit. Lakembe will cost about $26,500 a year, according to its developers, the Japanese company Asai and the American firm Biogen. That cost probably won't be covered by Medicare, though, until the FDA grants a full approval. Carrillo says that's unfair. Without coverage, we are talking about a breakthrough that is not available to the American public. And that is not acceptable. Lakembe is likely to fare better than its predecessor, Aduhelm, which has reached only a few hundred patients since its accelerated approval in 2021. Aduhelm also removes amyloid, but a pair of studies reached opposite conclusions about whether the drug also preserves mental function. Dr. Joy Snyder, a neurologist at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, says the evidence is much stronger for Lakembe. It's not a cure. It doesn't stop the disease completely. It doesn't make people get better. But it does slow down disease progression in, in very mild disease. Snyder, who helped test the drug, says the benefit appears to be small but meaningful. Maybe you could keep driving for an extra six months or a year. Maybe you could keep doing your checkbook for an extra six months to a year. Things like that. Lakembi can cause side effects like swelling or bleeding in the brain. But Snyder says it is the first approved drug that clearly alters the course of Alzheimer's rather than just relieving symptoms. I'm hopeful, I think many people are, that this is the start of a trend of, of many new drugs. And there are several more you know, coming down behind it that may really help us start to develop some ways to, to slow down this disease. It could be many months, though, before Lakembi reaches most of the millions of patients who might benefit. To qualify for treatment, people need to undergo tests showing that they are in the early stages of dementia and that their brains contain the amyloid deposits that are a hallmark of Alzheimer's. That process is likely to include at least two visits to specialists who are in short supply. Jakob Havka, a health policy expert at the University of Southern California, says the result is likely to be a very long queue. Roughly speaking, we can expect that to take about five years uh, before all of the currently eligible patients may get cleared through that queue. Treating all these patients could cost tens of billions of dollars a year. Havka says the price tag is so high that payers and federal officials may consider a new approach to caring for people with dementia. One of the potential solutions would be to see if we can pool all of the dementia patients who are covered under different plans into a single risk pool and then essentially provide coordinated access and care to those patients. There's a precedent for that approach. Since the early 1970s, Medicare has run a special program for people of all ages whose kidneys are failing. John Hamilton, NPR News. The lungs of our planet are shrinking. The Amazon rainforest is larger than half of the continental U.S. But deforestation has been ferociously eating away at the rainforest. Brazil's new president, De Silva, made protecting the Amazon a central part, part of his campaign. Later today in All Things Considered, we hear how the country has a chance to restore this important ecosystem. The plans actually look really good and really strong, which is a welcome surprise. Lula has been putting the Amazon at the center of his government. You can tune into that conversation by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. It's time for sports, and of course, the overwhelming story of the week is the injury to DeMar Hamlin 
of the Buffalo Bills this past Monday night during a game against the Cincinnati Bengals. Mr. Hamlin went into cardiac arrest. He had to be resuscitated. He is now reported to be awake and conversing with his family from his hospital bed. Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media joins us. Howard, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Scott. Um, this is good news. But do we need to also examine if, if, if DeMar Hamlin's injury should be what amounts to a call of action to examine this thoroughly popular and destructive game? Well, I think this is a conversation in so many ways that you and I have been having for how many years now? Um, Quite a few. Almost 20. Yeah. And the cynical view on this has always been, well, football is a $15 billion juggernaut and it's going to be a $25 billion juggernaut by the end of the decade. And now that you're adding the gambling into it as well, the, the financial incentives to play the sport, to run the sport are all too much to talk about. Uh, any sort of calls to action. And then Monday happens. And then you look at what happens here and you have a young man who's on the field whose heart has stopped and they're performing CPR on national television. And it's just an incredibly cynical thing for me to even consider that this wouldn't be some form of of call to action. We've said over the years that football is in many ways and just very clearly it's a death sport. And it's the sport that they always, what's the the line about football? It's the one sport with a 100% guaranteed injury rate. The goal in football is to hurt people. And so when you see something like this, there's no, there's no way out. We can talk as much as we want about the machine of football. We can talk about the ratings of football. We talk about how many different TV shows get destroyed by football every Sunday because Mm -hmm. the game is so popular. But if you're going to talk about all that, you have to talk about this as well. This is not an aberration. This is part of the game. You've said to me many times over the years, I quote it all the time, the problem with football is football. Yes. And and this is the, the... the extreme side of what this is. And it's not as though we haven't had moments that give us that wake-up call. Mm -hmm. You had a player die on the field in 1971, Chuck Hughes. And as you and I were talking about yesterday, that they finished that game. Yeah. That game still reached its completion. It was against the Bears. Ten minutes later, they picked up play. Yeah. That's that's right. And we've seen Daryl Stingley paralyzed against the Oakland Raiders when he was with the New England Patriots. We've Dennis Byrd, Mike Utley, uh, Ryan Chazier. We've seen these catastrophic injuries. We had Corey Stringer didn't die on the field, but died during training camp, I believe, of heat stroke. And so we we know what this game does. And and then there's obviously the controversy of whether or not Roger Goodell, who showed a real lack of, of leadership, I believe, on, on Monday, and you know, by, by suggesting, you know, when the game was to, on the broadcast, telling us that there was going to be, you know, Goodell didn't say it, but they're denying that the broadcast, uh, when, when Joe Buck told us that they were going to have a five-minute warm-up and then go back to playing. Yeah. And... I thought about that and said, of course they're going to go back to playing. This is what they're used to. This is what we're all used to. There's an injured 49er on the field, and then they go to a commercial, and then 
we go back to keep playing because that's what happens in the game. And so when this happens, it's not a shock, but it needs to be a shock because whether we're talking about this as a 24-year-old or what happens to these players later in life, this is the reality of this game that gives everybody so much, uh, so much joy. It's not funny. Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media, thanks so much. Good to hear you. Thank you. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Some promising news. The number of veterans who are homeless in the U.S. dropped in 2021 by 11 percent. That is the biggest reduction in five years, according to the Department of Veterans Affairs. The Biden administration says it's aiming for a major reduction of all types of homelessness by 2025. NPR's Quill Lawrence spoke with homeless veterans in Phoenix, Arizona, about how that might happen. The nonprofit U.S. Vets runs a 150-bed transitional housing campus in Phoenix. It's called Grand Veterans Village. Every morning there's a roll call. Donald Monday, Damon Barry. In the courtyard of what used to be a motel, Army vet Mike Biggs gives a pep talk after checking off names. A brightly colored mural of a soldier covers the two-story wall behind him. Nothing will work unless you do. That's what I've been telling each and every one of you time and time again. Why? Because we know there's more to you than sometimes that you see in yourself. Biggs says people underestimate themselves, but also people sometimes don't know they're in crisis. He didn't. So I came out here to Arizona to visit my sister, and two veterans uh, saw me and asked me if I was a vet. I said, yes. They said, well, you're homeless. And I'm like, no, I'm not. So they had to explain to me what the definition of homelessness is. So when they say chronically homeless, I'm like, well, man, my name hasn't been on a lease for you know, five or six years. Biggs had been too focused on getting by to realize. And I said, well, yeah, and I've been homeless for a very long time then. So they said, well, you need to come with us. Didn't know these guys from a can of paint. Those two veterans got him into the housing program here at U.S. Vets and eventually offered him a job. He said he'd stay for 90 days. That was 10 years ago. U.S. Vets uses an approach called housing first, as Biggs explains. So housing first is a model where the ultimate goal and the main priority is to get a veteran housed. With that comes a thing called wraparound services. The idea is to get veterans a place to live and then take care of other problems like health care, maybe substance abuse or mental health services. This approach was part of a plan that saw a 55% reduction in veterans' homelessness since 2010. But that progress mostly stalled during the Trump administration when Housing First got caught up in divided politics. In some communities, this has been more controversial, I think, than maybe it needs to be. Catherine Monet leads the National Coalition for Homeless Veterans in Washington. She says Housing First even became a campaign issue last year. Some Republican candidates denounced what had been considered an evidence-based success. That includes in Arizona, where Carrie Lake, the failed Republican candidate for governor, argued that housing should be a reward for treatment. Lake had the backing of former President Donald Trump, who himself appointed a critic of Housing First to head the Federal Interagency Council on Homelessness. Monet says the politics was a costly distraction. I do think that the renewed energy and focus that this administration has had on veteran homelessness has really allowed for communities and providers to focus on doing what works 
as opposed to really working to address some of the divisiveness that we've seen in recent years. Monet says once people get in housing, it's less expensive to take on their other issues, so resources go further. But President Biden's goal of reducing all homelessness 25 percent by the end of his term is still ambitious. Back in Phoenix, Mike Biggs says even veterans with jobs are seeking help to stay off the streets. There's not enough affordable housing. When I first got here 10 years ago, you could find an apartment um, for $500 a month, $99 move-in special. Those places are gone. That math holds true in cities across the country that have a high number of homeless veterans, even with the Biden administration pouring funds into Housing First. Quill Lawrence, NPR News, Phoenix. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. If you are using the MBTA this weekend, then you might encounter some disruptions. On the red line, shuttle buses are replacing train service for several stops surrounding the JFK UMass station to accommodate work on the station. Orange and green line trains are bypassing Haymarket station as demolition of the government center garage continues. Green line passengers exit at North Station or government center. Orange line riders exit at North Station or State Street. Also, the Orange Line is still running behind schedule after several new Orange Line cars were removed from service for an electrical issue. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey has signed her first executive order. Yesterday, she signed the order creating the cabinet-level position of state climate chief, the first position of its kind in the country. Healey appointed EPA Deputy General Counsel Melissa Hofer to the role. In sports tonight, the Celtics are on the road against the San Antonio Spurs, and the Bruins take on the Sharks in San Jose. It's 38 degrees in Boston, mostly cloudy today, and highs in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Noom, a personalized program based in psychology to help people understand their motivations, change their habits, and lead healthier lives. Learn more at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. And from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The pale blue eye opens with the death of a West Point cadet who was found with his heart ripped out. Detective Augustus Landor lives nearby and responds to the scene, and soon the body of another cadet, similarly brutalized, is discovered. And within a month... Another, to try to gain information in a community bound together by a code of silence, 
The detective enlists a cadet who doesn't seem to quite fit in at West Point and who will soon become better known as the writer Edgar Allan Poe. The Pale Blue Eye, which is in theaters and now on Netflix, is based on the 2003 novel of the same name. It stars Christian Bale as Detective Landor, and Poe is played by Harry Melling, who's been in five Harry Potter films and joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. The film is set in 1830, but i got to begin by asking, what's Edgar Allan Poe doing at West Point? I know, that's what I thought, right? He, he was there in real life, which is extraordinary. I had to look that up, yes. <laughs> he thought it was a good place to write, have some downtime uh, <laughs> to write, which I just thought was a wonderful insight into who this man is. Of course, he had no time to write whatsoever. Yeah. What do you think um, in the story Detective Landor sees in Edgar, young Edgar Allan Poe? But I think to begin with, he just enjoys his company. I mean, he's very flamboyant and very eccentric. And I think uh, when I was playing him, I remember thinking, I need to give Landor enough reasons to fall in love with Poe. Uh, and then I think he cottons on to actually this guy may have something to him. He, he goes, he keeps trying to tell the audience how, how uh, wonderfully smart he is. And I think Landor really understands that actually he, he really does contain a real sharp intellect. Oh, pardon. Are you Augustus Landor? <coughs> I am. Unless I'm mistake, you've been tasked with solving the mystery surrounding Leroy Fry. That's so. What might I do for you? It is incumbent upon me and the honor of this institution to divulge some of the conclusions which I have reached. Conclusions? Regarding the late Mr. Fry. I'd be most interested. The man you're looking for is a poet. What did you try to um, to capture and events in playing Edgar Allan Poe? Let me put it this way. A, a character in a film, or did you want to somehow suggest the writer uh, so many people grow up reading? It's, it's a hard challenge because you're, you're doing a balancing act, really, of playing this icon, but also giving yourself enough room to reinvent who he is. And I think that was the constant thing I was I was trying to do was to take the historical fact of what was useful, his nomadic life certainly um, as a much younger man, but also having enough room to invent to challenge mm. those perceptions of how we might think um, Edgar Allan Poe and who he would be. And I have to ask, do you think young Poe was excited, enthralled, engaged by murder? Oh, absolutely. Yes, I, I think he was he was enthralled in, in how his ego might interact with the idea of discovering who had done this act. I think um, certainly the young Poe is, is someone who, 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 who relished the opportunity to, 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 to work out who did who did what. And, and certainly um, his younger writings was, was filled with this idea of, um, you know, he had a really high, high, um, high opinion of himself as an artist and as, as a poet. So that was very interesting to try and delve into. Yeah. And I have to ask, so many well-known actors in this film, and all of them British. I mean, <laughs> with, with respect, and you and Christian Bale yeah. and Gillian Anderson and Lucy Boynton and Toby Jones and Charlotte Gainsbourg and Simon McBurney and Tim Spall ever turn to each other and say, wait a minute, this movie's set in America. Why did they hire all us British people? That's what was Scott Cooper thinking. Um, no, I, I think there's something about, I mean, Scott talks about it and, and can talk about it um, much better than me. But this there's something is the about, director. Yeah. The director, sorry, yeah. The, um, 
there's something about the language that he felt uh, fitted um, with the English sense of language, which which he was excited by. And yeah, I mean, I, I can't speak to that. I'm just very happy that I'm in the film. You're a busy man. I don't know if you saw any coverage of new U.S. senators being sworn in this week. <laughs> but did you happen to see a former extra in this film who, who took the oath of office? I sadly didn't, but I was lucky enough to meet him on set. And, and what a joy that was to, to have met him and, and what a, um, a real privilege to, to have you know, spent some time with him. We, we should explain, I guess. John Fetterman was, uh, was he the lieutenant governor and he was an extra in the bar scene? He, he was in the tavern scene the first time that Landron and Pro properly meet. There was John at the end of the table having a, a pint, nursing a pint. So, um, yeah, it was wonderful to, to get the opportunity to say hello to him. Yeah. Uh, we learn in the course of the film, of course, that Augustus Landor is struggling with his own personal loss. And that adds a whole new dimension to the story, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think they're both in, in some way dealing with loss and their relationship. They're both outsiders and somehow they find this intimate bond. And I, I found that very moving when reading the script. You play Poe as a young man before he's famous. But of course, we know that he would be famous and then die just 19 years later at the age of 40. Did he take his life? Did he drink himself to death? <sighs> I mean, it, it's every, every, um, every time I come across reading about his death, it's just shrouded in such mystery. And it almost, you know, the mythology of who this man was, it, it kind of elevates it into a different space. And and I don't know. I mean, what I do know is he was restless and he was his own worst enemy. And when he was productive, he was incredibly productive. But also when he wasn't, he just went off the rails. And obviously the last moments in, the, in his life, he was going off the rails but um, and ended up in, in someone else's clothes, I believe, on a yeah. park bench somewhere. So it's an extraordinary ending, an extraordinary ending. Did you uh, immerse yourself in much Poe to play this role? I did. I mean, it was like I said, it was a combination between reading as much as I could about him and his own works, and then also allowing there to be enough room to, to have a play and to to challenge this idea of who we think he is. But I loved the whole reading up about him. I would go to Highgate Cemetery, which is a cemetery quite close to me, and just walk around and recite the Raven. So it was a wonderful um, time getting to learn about this character. And what do you what do you think Poe sensed in storytelling that we might take from him today? With all his writings, there's a sense of an otherworldliness, this life happening outside of what he's written. And there's something about that, the stuff that lives underneath the words. That's what I always think of, of with Poe, you know, the 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 things under the floorboards. Mm. And 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 certainly that was my idea. Is this is a man with many layers? You know, when we first meet him, he is performing to everyone, but actually the more the film goes on, we more layers and layers and layers are revealed, and we get a real sense of who this person is. And I I think of that when I read his writing. Would you be game to play him again? Uh it'd be kind of irresistible for someone <laughs> to ask you, maybe at another moment in his life. Who knows? I mean, if a script comes along that is 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 good, and I, I think I can offer something to it, then I would I would love to. I mean, he's such an endlessly fascinating, mysterious character that I would love to have a go. Yeah. Harry Melling is Edgar Allan Poe in the new film, The Pale Blue Eye. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Scott. Master Marin Alsop is in the great city of Chicago this weekend. 
to make a statement about women in classical music. There aren't enough. Aaron Elsop, thanks so much for joining us again. Yeah, great to be with you, Scott. Thanks. Why aren't there more women conductors? Why don't or, or composers? Why don't we hear about them? Well, it's very strange. You know, it's more likely that a woman would head a G7 nation than lead a major American orchestra. That is stunning. Things are changing. I, I think the Me Too movement really opened a lot of doors. So now I'm seeing a lot more opportunities for women. And, and let's hope that those will sustain through the years and really into the industry. Tell us about the concerts you're leading with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Two concerts featuring three pieces, all of them composed by women. Is there a kind of theme or thread that you see runs through them? All three pieces have a literary connection. The main piece on the program is by Julia Wolfe, and it's called Her Story. And this is a piece about the Equal Rights Amendment, which first came into play in 1923, and believe it or not, to this day, has still not been passed. And it's pretty shocking that we can live in a country like ours and not have that kind of equal rights statement in our constitution. This is a piece that is addressing the issues of discrimination and the barriers that face women. And some of the text is, you know, unruly, unloving, unmarried, un... This is the complaint about women throughout history. They're unblank. And uh, it's very, very effective, very strong, and I think everyone that comes will be really wowed by the piece. One of the pieces you'll lead is The Midnight Hour from uh, the composer Anna Klein. Wonderful piece, huh? Yeah, help us understand this, this maelstrom into which we're inserted. You know, so this is a piece of depicting a poem that's all about motion and dancing. And, you know, we hear references to folk themes. Anna loves to do that, to, to weave in the past into the present. And it's a very dynamic piece, lots, lots of rhythmic drive. Her music is, is extremely engaging in that way. I've got to be the probably millionth person to ask you about Tar. <laughs> oh, gosh. This is, the, this is the movie starring Kate Blanchett as a major symphony conductor. Came out last year. 
And you are cited as, well, obviously the precedence-setting conductor that you are. Is it a chore? Is it a burden? Is it just an irritation <laughs> to be a historic precedent-setting example? <laughs> well, it probably depends on what day you ask me that question, but uh, I think generally it's a privilege. And I'm so happy to be in a position to try to open doors for future generations. Mm -hmm. There's also a, a burden that you have to carry when you're the quote-unquote first, you know, because you can never escape that label. So there's always baggage yeah. that you have to drag around with you. But Again, I think it's a, a small price for the incredible opportunities that I have to try to inspire and give hope mm -hmm. for women coming up through the field. Of course, we should explain you took over the uh, the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra in 2007. And you're now chief conductor of the Vienna Radio Orchestra, conductor of honor at the Sao Paulo Symphony and uh, the Ravinia Festival yeah. right out there in Chicago. In your experience, and from what you may have heard from others over the years, what are some of the barriers women encounter? Well, I think conducting is quite specific because it's not like playing the violin. You can't practice your instrument whenever you want. You know, you have to have a chance in front of the orchestra, you, unless you have uh, 20 or 40 friends come over I, every day, I suppose. But, you know, when you only have one opportunity, it's very hard to take chances because you know you don't want to blow that opportunity. So I think getting experience and making mistakes, one of the key components to, in my opinion anyway, to, to finding success is, is being able to make mistakes mm -hmm. and learn from those. We, we learn so much more from those mistakes. And that's why I started the Taki Alsop Conducting Fellowship in 2002, was to try to create a safe environment for women to try things and, and find a community to talk to. For composers, it's similar because they have to hear their work brought to life by the orchestra, and then they have to be able to have a chance to tweak it, change, edit, do mm -hmm. these things. So I, I'm happy to see so many more women composers being represented. When you're conducting pieces like this in a, in a, in a program like this, how do you hope people might be affected? Is it enough just to be transported by the music or...? You want something else. I think that it, it's always enough to be transported by the music. But I also think if it can open a door to discussion or to talking to your daughter who you brought to the concert, you know, yeah. or your or your, you know, about about the history of women in leadership roles, about the idea, you know, it's it's all in our perspectives, of course. And when people don't see women, don't see people of color on the podiums of the world, they don't realize that that's an option. So it's mm -hmm. really, really important to get that discussion going, I think. Maestro Marin Alsop conducts a program of all women composers this weekend with the Great Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Marin, thanks so much for being back with us. Can't wait to talk to you again. Have a wonderful weekend. Thanks so much, Scott, and Happy New Year. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Cruise Lines, 
cruising the Maine coast where travelers can experience a lobster bake and explore New England's maritime heritage. Learn more at americancruiselines.com NPR. And from Data Aiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next at 10 o'clock. It is 38 degrees in Boston, mostly cloudy today. Highs in the mid-40s. Lows overnight in the mid-20s. Tomorrow is sunny Sunday and highs in the upper 30s. Looking ahead to Monday, partly sunny, a slight chance of some snow, and highs in the low 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Birch's School, a nature-based school for curious learners, pre-K through 8th grade, open house today from 1 to 3. More at birchesschool.org. Later today on This American Life. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Spirits and Scoundrels Tour. We're in Savannah. I guarantee you we will be walking on the dead this evening. We may well be standing on some as I'm speaking. But the past and how we tell it aren't always what they seem. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.